Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Studio Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And we are back all up in your ear holes for another fun-filled romp into nerd randomness. Jim, how you doing today, bud? And there is plenty of nerd randomness to get to. And I'm good. I'm real good. It's uh, Sleep's been kind of an elusive animal the last couple of days, but, uh, you know, it, it, it'll come. It'll come in due time. We don't need to sleep, do we? Now I'm sleeping, I'm dead. I got too much shit to do. <laughs> I tell people that, and then every time I don't sleep, I say, they say, oh, I look like I'm dead. So I mean, I, I sleep maybe three, four, five hours a night at max, so it's like, I, I get you. Ever elusive. That's what I've been averaging lately. Oh, so you're right in my boat. That's not good. Yeah, we're rowing it together. Ugh. Yawning the entire time, sleepy as fuck. Rowing it. We're each rowing it in different directions, so we're just spinning around in a fucking circle. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of how it goes sometimes. <laughs> uh, so what you been up to lately, other than not sleeping? Well, I got to uh, a chance on Sunday, uh, during our usual recording time, uh, I, I obligated myself to uh, to go visit a buddy. I have a friend who I used to work with way back in the day, which was a Tuesday, before I started my illustrious creative career. My last uh, job before I started doing the marketing thing was I worked in the drum section of a big box music store. Like a Sam Ash or Guitar Center, but not either one of those. One that kind of rose and fell very quickly, called Mars Music. Um, started by the guy who actually started Office Depot, and he started it based on the same business model of, I'm just going to uh, borrow a bunch of capital and open a bunch of stores in a bunch of cities, not realizing that every city has offices with expense accounts, and even though every city of any size also has musicians, they're also super cheap. So the entire chain was, uh, I think, groundbreaking to liquidation was about five years, and I worked there for about <laughs> 4.75 of that. Um, Those musicians are notoriously broke. Yeah, we are, but uh, you know that's he, he just he figured he'd he'd, he'd start a, a a big box music store in every town, open them all up, and then the money would just roll in to cover his uh, startup cost, and it just didn't. But I worked with some guys uh, back in the day who uh, have become lifelong friends, and one of my friends, Keith, uh, he's a uh, singer songwriter in this area, does some really great Americana stuff. A uh, really good guy, and in the last couple of years, he's been aggressively and very uh, stalwartly fighting multiple myeloma, and so they had a huge benefit for him at a nearby bowling alley, and there were just hundreds of people that turned out for the raffle and the silent auction, and uh, he, he did some uh, a couple hours worth of music, and some other friends of his turned up to do some music, and it was just a really great day to see all these great folks turn out for Keith and um, drop some cash on him, and... I talked to him uh, the day after, and he said uh, he raised somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $60,000 for his health care costs, which is fantastic. Wow. Um, So good for him, and, um, you know, I'll do love to Keith for uh, for fighting his, uh, his, 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 his... his horrible battle, but he's he's coming out on top of it, and he's doing really great, and and uh, God love him. I just really hope he, uh, he, you know, he's 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 doing better every day. So that was great. Um, ordinarily, we'd be recording on Sunday, but I had to kind of beg off to go and do that because he's just such a good dude. And so my lady and I went and listened to some music and dropped some raffle tickets into some boxes and just checked out some uh, some great music, and it was just a lot of fun. Did you win any of the raffles? Not so far, but uh, there was one particular raffle item that I was really interested in. So 
they had a lot of clothing items, and usually I look at clothing items and think, ah, none of this shit's going to fit me. But they had a uh, really nice uh, Harley Davidson bundle uh, with a, uh, a black button-down shirt, which, of course, I have about 80 of those in my closet, so any <laughs> opportunity I have to add one of those is uh, is, is, is a good one. And, Why of not? course, Harley Davidson here in the uh, southeastern Wisconsin region is a major employer and a huge cultural force. True. So they had a... Uh, a, a 5X uh, black button-down, which is actually a little big for me by about a size or two. But uh, there weren't too many tickets in the box, so I stuffed it. And uh, according to Keith, they're going to be doing some drawings over the next couple of days to find out who won the prizes. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. How you doing? Man, I woke up this morning. I have yard shift uh, today and tomorrow, which is kind of nice because it's the one time where I'm at a solid location and I can work a solid shift instead of being on call. I only do those randomly, but it is nice when they happen because then I can sleep to a certain hour every day, and and I, I usually, you know, get to sleep past my normal wake up time, which is like two o'clock in the morning, whatever. Um, so that's been good. It enabled me to do a lot of research for today. But uh, I woke up with a really strange uh, text message from FedEx. Uh, which is weird. Oh, I usually keep really close tabs on the shit that I've ordered and when it's coming, and because I'm, I'm like really uh, uh, like passive aggressive about it because you know I want to make sure someone's here because I don't trust neighbors or live right across from a high school. I don't trust high school kids not to steal my packages. You mm. know, shit like that. Get off my lawn. So I always got yeah. a real keen eye on when things are going to be arriving, and so I had a really bizarre one because. I'm expecting... I bought those three model kits uh, from Japan uh, Yahoo Auctions. There's one of a little... A model kit of a PS1. A model kit of a Sega Saturn. And then a model kit of a cup noodle. What the hell is wrong with you people? Which is bizarre as shit. And that was the reason I did them. It's three in a series of set from Bandai. And so I'm really looking forward to getting those. But... Uh, model kits, as far as I'm aware, don't weigh seven and a half pounds. So no, I got this. I got a FedEx delivery notification saying, "Hey, your package will be is in California. It'll be there on Thursday." And I'm like, "Oh, great, cool!" Because usually my Sendico packages come through uh, from Japan to California, and then California up to Washington. So I was expecting the Sendico information. I thought that's what it was. And then I got another text message this one this morning that said, Hey, you've got a delivery schedule. I'm like, wait, I already had a delivery schedule. What the fuck is this? What you talking about, and so I start comparing the two shipping labels and one is like seven and a half pounds. I'm like, there's no way three model kits weigh seven and a half pounds. That uh, would be a smidge hefty. Unless they're made of like aluminum, and I know for a fact they're not. Uh, and so I had to do a little digging, which my brain wasn't fully awake yet, so it was it was it was a bit muddled and a little bit kludgy as I bashed at my phone trying to make it do the thing. And uh, uh, it turns out uh, I had ordered about six or seven months ago. I talked to you about I was going to put together a uh, a Ghostbusters cosplay, right? Yeah. And so I bought the flight suit and I bought the belt and I bought the the patches and i'm working on getting all the little belt greeblies and things like that and uh consulting with our good friend uh, uh paul haga who's a big ghostbusters aficionado um and a cosplay component manufacturer of of considerable note indeed 
PH Props online. Check him out. On Etsy. Yeah, definitely go and throw him some cash. The man's uh, dedicated, passionate, and he makes good stuff. He makes brilliant stuff. Uh, but, so, I had bought a, a while back when I was buying all the little components about seven months ago. I ended up picking up the uh, Spirit Halloween Store's version of the Proton Pack. Which is, mm-hmm. it's like a three-quarter size Proton Pack. The only people who are really going to notice the size differential is going to be, you know, the people who have put these things together and measured them honestly. And so I figure yeah. it's something I can get away with, do a little aging on it and everything. But the wand, the new Trota wand that comes with it is atrocious. It's like, uh, like five ounces soaking wet and it's just flimsy and terrible. And so Ghostbusters, <laughs> yeah, right, so Hasbro, uh, has Labs is what they call it, put together a uh, one-to-one replica of Egon Spengler's uh, Neutrona wand. And uh, I pre-ordered it from Entertainment Earth about seven months ago. And I got an email a while back saying, oh, well, that's been put off till December of 2020, uh, 2022. So I, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to cancel that order, whatever. I'll find it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Guess who forgot to cancel his order? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. This, oh no this guy so by thursday of this week i will have my hands on a on a neutrona wand for my ghostbusters costume uh well i mean you know that's uh <laughs> it, it, that's a, a pretty decent outcome for a uh a, a little bit of a mental brain fart oversight sure i mean they already took uh, the money but so, you know I mean, at least you'll have it yeah might as well oh speaking of ghostbusters, ghostbusters. uh at the risk of uh uh, we we got to segue into a little bit of nerd news here. I just read today that Ghostbusters is going to be uh, getting another iteration of the film franchise. Yeah. Now, I really was a huge, huge fan of Ghostbusters Afterlife. I was skeptical about it initially. Right. Uh, because it was kind of one of those movies that got caught up in post-production hell for a long time. The trailer for it, I think, came out a good two years before we saw the movie. Right. So usually that's not a good sign. That and I looked at it and I thought, it doesn't look funny. It looks like they took a real serious turn with it. They pulled it out of New York City and they're driving the Ecto-1 through a cornfield. What the fuck is this noise? It's got the kid from Stranger Things who, you know, Finn Wolfhard, he's great. But it seems like, oh, if we're going to be doing an 80s homage to uh, kind of pop culture horror, we got to have that kid in it. So I kind of wrinkled my head over it a little bit and I thought, you know, this might be kind of garbage, but I wound up loving it so much I saw it three times in the theater. So that's really good news that we're going to be getting more of that. But along with that announcement came the announcement that um, there's going to be a lot of movies, kind of like what Disney Plus did, where they they announced things that were going to be in production that were going to be either simultaneously theatrically released as well as streaming, or they were just going to be like like Dune was, like it came out on streaming at the same time or or, uh, or shortly thereafter. Like we... We just got Batman streaming uh, after, about a month after it came out in the theaters, and No Way Home was, was on streaming about two months afterward. So these windows between theatrical release and streaming slash home video release are getting tighter and tighter all the time. Which is great. But uh, along with the announcement that there's... Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, along with the announcement that... Um, that uh, Ghostbusters is getting another iteration. They said that uh, there's a lot of Lionsgate movies, including Ghostbusters, the upcoming Ghostbusters, and John Wick 4... Uh, which was also a surprise announcement. Uh, we pretty much knew it was going to be coming out, but we didn't know when. But it was th- those things are going to be streaming, uh, I think, same day as theatrical release on Roku. Nice. Uh, due to a, a long-standing pandemic-era agreement with Lionsgate. So that was good news. Um, 
And, uh, gosh, what else? Let's see. Uh, James Gunn, who uh, we've talked about quite a bit on the program previously due to the fact that he kind of has ducked cancellation by owning his shit a little bit right. instead of doubling down on it like some folks that shall not be named. <laughs> but uh, there have been some calls recently, especially in the wake of the Guardians of the Galaxy trailer that came out, to replace Chris Pratt as Star-Lord. Well... First of all, that's not going to happen because this movie is already in the can. The, the the new Guardians of the Galaxy is coming out. There's going to be a Christmas special. Uh, the, the Thor trailer has dropped, and he's in that, obviously, because Thor is kind of out with the Guardians. But Chris Pratt has somewhat fallen out of favor. He's not been necessarily canceled, but he's, he's kind of having to eat some shit in the popular culture because he's got some kind of unpopular beliefs. Um, he's kind of a fundamentalist Christian a little bit, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but the particular church he belongs to tends to be pretty far right and also pretty anti-choice slash militantly pro-life. So there's that. Plus, uh, he's, he's gone on to, um, Instagram and, uh, with his, uh, I think he's, he's married now to Catherine Schwarzenegger, if I'm not wrong, they got married. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he's said some things that some folks who are sort of hypercritical of this fundamentalist Christian movement he's rumored to belong to have interpreted as, as meaning that he's, uh, got some problematic misogynist views as well. So, um, Chris Pratt has, has kind of far from being like the fun loving, goofy Andy Dwyer of Parks and Rec. Now he's, uh, he's kind of getting a little bit of side eye from the, the woke folks, uh, and, and those of us who are a little bit progressive about being, a little bit not part of that movement. Right. But James Gunn has uh, has gone on record as uh, answering the call to replace him in the, the MCU uh, and, and saying, and I quote, for what? Because if you're made up utterly false beliefs about him for something that someone else told you about him that's not true, Chris Pratt would never be replaced as Star-Lord, but if he ever was, we'd all be going with him. Uh, now that kind of speaks to... Uh, Dave Bautista also, when he decided he wasn't going to continue his Drax anymore, um, after they kind of shit-canned James Gunn from the Guardians franchise, uh, which is why we got the Suicide Squad out of him, he moved over to DC for a little while, and that dovetails that we're going to talk to talk about, the, the points we're going to speak to a little bit today. Right. Um, but he... Uh, uh, th- there's been s- some shake-ups going on with that whole end of the MCU, but... Um, yeah, James Gunn is uh, is vehemently defending his cast, and uh, he did so when, when Dave Bautista said he was going to step down as Drax. And uh, Dave Bautista, um, when James Gunn originally got fired from directing any more MCU movies before they brought him back in, after his apologies for his, uh, his problematic tweets from the past, um, they, they just seem really unified over there, especially uh, in the Guardians corner of the MCU. They really seem like a team who... Through thick or thin, has each other's backs. So which is nice. That could to be see. a good thing or a bad right. thing, but yeah. But uh, still, I mean, I regardless of how I feel about you know fundamentalist organized religion or right wing anything, uh, yeah, I don't really necessarily have a problem with Chris Pratt as an actor. Um, you know, he's not one of these people like um, she he'll should not be named from the Mandalorian who doubled down on her uh, anti-Semitism or. Um, you know, uh, Evangeline Lilly, who they've been kind of kicking around as possibly replacing as uh, as uh, the Wasp, just because she's kind of said some problematic things about governmental issues. It's sticky. You know, you can't necessarily always have a unified political idea when you have a, a vast universe Massive like this. But uh, yeah, yeah. But well, you know, what do you do? I mean, it, it really is just one of those things that you kind of have to roll with and pick your battles on. Agreed, and, and I think it's like. 
he hasn't crossed the line into blatant just hatred, which I think is, yeah. and I'll say her name, fuck it, Gina Carano is still a very hateful person. Ugh. And so, I mean, and just the fact that she's found her niche working with old uh, dry desert wife uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, just because <laughs> she's doubled down and just kind of, uh, just kind of the same thing that Roseanne Barr did uh, when she yeah. uh, kept opening her mouth and then got ousted from her show. Uh, the thing is, is he hasn't really bordered onto anything super hateful just yet. Uh, we we can't condemn yeah. people for the company they keep necessarily. I say that with 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 huge reservation. Uh, and the same thing I think goes for Evangeline Lilly. She's in, certainly entitled to her opinions. However, in our opinion, wrongheaded they are. Uh, she hasn't verged into pure hatred yet. Uh, the same thing can be said with uh, Letitia Wright over on the Black Panther set too. Uh, for sure, we can't just systematically penalize everybody that has a different opinion than us it does raise eyebrows it does make us aware and and more on their radar and them on our radar I should say but uh it, it it's not something that we can just automatically cancel people for because if we did shit there'd be no one left uh um, true and speaking of free speech we have to also address the other big uh, I mean, piece of nerd news this week what we talked about last uh, week we kind of have to i think it's official. Asshole millionaire Elon Musk has officially bought Twitter for $45 billion. Yay. Of course, I don't mean to beat this dead horse any more than I did last week when I went off on my rant about how this asshole uh, was... Uh, yeah, I, I call him an asshole because he really is an asshole. When he said, oh boy, uh, if I people keep saying I could cure world hunger for $6 billion. Well, tell me how to do it and I'll just sell Tesla stock and, and cure world hunger. So the UN uh, came back with a proposal saying, okay, for $6.6 billion, here's how we could make a giant dent in, in, in global food supplies and world hunger. And then Elon Musk was like, cool, well, I'm going to go to space. And he just fucking ignored them. And then he pulls $45 billion in liquid funds out of his ass to buy Twitter. Um, I'm worried about what's going to happen to Twitter. We have friends who work at Twitter. Yeah, we do. Um, but Twitter being one of the most influential, if not the most influential, social media platforms, and Elon Musk saying that he's a free speech absolutist, and that's why he's buying Twitter, but having a demonstrated track record of quashing people who've criticized him in the past, by any means he possibly can, from canceling their Tesla orders if they write critical articles about him, to uh, firing them if they stand in the parking lot of his establishment handing out questionable literature that, that calls into question his leadership of their company. Uh, you know, the guy has, has he, he might call himself a free speech advocate, but I saw a political cartoon that was Elon Musk leading a giant Trojan horse labeled free speech that had Donald Trump on the inside of it um, with a bubble over his head that had a censored N-word in it. So um, I, I really hope that his intentions are pure, but he's done nothing in the past couple of years to lead me to believe that he is going to be having the purest of intentions, which is a bummer because, I mean, we, how would we rely... We, 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 how would we possibly... We rely on Twitter for, for hot takes. Uh, I just read... A speak, and this will tie everything up in a nice, neat little bow. Everything we've talked about. I saw a tweet earlier today... Um, and this will uh, bring together the insomnia thing we talked about, the MCU thing we talked about, and the Twitter thing we talked about, and a nice little button so we can launch into what we're actually going to talk about today. Uh, I saw a tweet from um, a, a Twitter handle uh, called Gynoid Princess, G-Y-N-O-I-D Princess, 
uh, that said between Oscar Isaac's Moon Knight, Robert Pattinson's Batman, Tom Hardy's Venom, Bruno Mancanto, and Pete Davidson's Pete Davidson, I feel like our culture is entering a new phase where the big archetype for male sex symbols is pitiable garbage disaster man who does not sleep. So I guess we're in good company. <laughs> now, I would need to point out for clarity's sake, I did see something today that said that he did make a payment to the UN for about $5.7 billion uh, after the whole, I think it was sometime in February. Now, I can't verify that. I haven't done the research yet. So I remain open-minded to the fact that maybe he did donate a a buttload of money to charity and that we just don't know about it yet. So stand by on that. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Right. I still fully believe that he is our universe, our Earth's, Hank Scorpio, where he looks like he's a good guy on the outside, but secretly he's a Bond villain behind the scenes. <laughs> hey, Homer, you're missing out on some fun! And Hank Scorpio is, of course, a reference to The Simpsons. If you don't remember, Homer went to work for a different uh, power plant, and his boss was this magnanimous, chipper, wonderful guy who liked to play with flamethrowers. Fire! 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 <laughs> but was secretly a Bond villain. And I kind of feel that he's our Hank Scorpio, but I wish to God he was more Bruce Wayne than Hank Scorpio. Or even Tony Stark, like he tries to model himself after, but... Yeah. I don't know, bro. I guess we'll see what happens. I guess. But, yeah, so, I mean... Jury's still out. I need to do the research... This is me saying, for my part of this, that I will do the research because I want to know. I want to hold him accountable. If he did it, fantastic. I want to heap praise upon the guy. If he didn't do it... Yeah, I want to believe he's got good intentions. Yeah, if he didn't do it, score in a derision. As per usual, eat the rich. Okay. Yep. So, now, what I wanted to talk to you about today... And, of course, let's throw this out here at the beginning because we keep forgetting to do that. If you guys want to join in the conversation, you absolutely can. There's a lot of easy ways you can get a hold of us. You can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fandom. You can hit us up on our Gmail, which is fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. Backup Gmail is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. We're on Twitter. <laughs> Rimshot, please. <laughs> at... Fuel underscore your. We're on Instagram at, at Fuel Your Fandom. And of course, you can always toss us a couple bucks for the kids to get comics into the hands of underprivileged youth for the Fuel the Future charity drive on PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App at, at Fuel Your Fandom. And we hope you do. And as always, you can find us wherever you purchase your fine podcasts uh, on any of the fine distribution syndication platforms. But if you're impatient, as I tend to be, mm-hmm. the latest and greatest episode always goes up courtesy of my man Saint over at FuelYourFandom.Buzzsprout.com on Friday mornings, usually pretty early. So however you get us into your ear holes, we are appreciative that you do. That is correct. So here's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. We are on, like I said last week, we are on the cusp of Multiverse of Madness season. The next big, yes, almost guaranteed, probably blockbuster now. With pre-ticket sales and everything. I'm pretty sure it's already surpassed just about everything. Maybe not No Way Home, but it's up there. And it's Mm -hmm. raking in the numbers so far. And it's not even released yet. Everything is hype for this movie. 
oh, are the X-Men going to be in this movie? It's like, who's the Illuminati? Because they keep saying, now they're mentioning it by name. The Illuminati will see you now. I mean, it is pure hype, 100% hype. And uh, I'm excited for it. And it's got me in a real state of mind of just kind of examining the track record of uh, Marvel Comics, uh, the MCU in particular, and their villains. Because we've talked about before how these movies succeed or fail based on the quality of their casting, primarily. You can have the best script out there, but if you've got a shit cast, it's going to take a hit. I mean... And everyone was pissed scared that uh, uh, our new Batman, Robert Pattinson, was going to blow it. Was going to be just like his little uh, vampire self from uh, those Twilight movies that I never watched, thank God. But actually, uh, and, and surprising to many, but not to me, he knocked it out of the park. Robert Pattinson's yeah, Batman really was broody and introspective. And and young and and just like in his second year of cracking out at doing this, uh, and the weight of the world was on that guy, and you could see it, you could feel it. It was very palpable. It was very good. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, we just watched. We watched that again the other night. Thank you, HBO Max. And so, what? Like I said, the the quality of these movies tend to rise and fall on the backs of the people that they cast. Uh, in addition to things like the script or the directors and things like that, like Taika Waititi and, and James Gunn and the Russo brothers, they all, they know their thing. They know their craft. And Sam Raimi making 100%. his return to the MCU uh, after kicking off the original Spider-Man trilogy. He's coming back to direct um, Multiverse of Madness. Right. And that's uh, poised to be triumphant, as you said. And it's really cool because Sam Raimi's got those horror roots. And so it's going to be really yeah. neat to see those woven into the MCU as a, as a whole. But uh, so I wanted to kind of go, and we're gonna. I, I want to bring it up step by step. We're gonna go through the uh, the movies in the MCU on their release order, not in their. We're not gonna go in their chronological order because that gets a little bit timey wimey, uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. But uh, we're gonna go in their a bit. Uh, release order and. We'll kind of discuss the villains and the actors and where they succeeded, maybe where they failed. And, I mean, spoiler alert, this doesn't surprise anybody. There's not a lot of fail going on in the MCU as far as their villains. They've all been pretty spot on. But we can discuss the merits of all of them. Now, we're going to have to keep the discussions a bit shorter because there's so many of them. But next week, we're going to come back and we're going to do the same thing with the DCEU films. And those will be a bit longer of a conversation for, I'm sure, a multitude of reasons. But uh, chief among them being that they uh, don't have quite the the width and breadth of the MCU's catalog. So I'm looking forward to diving into whether or not Ezra Miller can be considered a, uh, a villain at this point. So uh, we'll talk about that when the time comes. He's the fucking reverse Flash at this point. Jesus. <laughs> He's... We could do a whole episode on Ezra Miller's recent fuck-ups. I mean... Okay, that's it. Of which there have been many. Of which there have been many. But uh, So we're going to kick it all the way back to the first MCU movie. The one to kick it off, the one to start the whole thing. We have Iron Man. And our villain... There's, I mean, there's a couple villainous people in this movie, but the key chief villain is Obadiah Stane. Uh, the Ironmonger, played by Jeff Bridges. 
yeah, the big bad of that movie is definitely uh, definitely Obadiah. He, he, it was so interesting to see him in such a serious take like that. Yeah. Because, you know, you're used to him in more of a affable kind of... I mean, maybe it's just because I'm used to him as the dude. I am not Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bridges kind of has made a career out of being a very uh, very easygoing, laid-back sort of guy, whether it was Fabulous Baker Boys, whether it was Big Lebowski or whatever. Um Jeff Bridges is, is, is always kind of the, uh, I mean, even in a piece of shit movie with a great cast, which is kind of the reverse of what we were talking about earlier, like R.I.P.D., which was uh, the sort of uh, uh, crappy poor man's version of Men in Black that starred like Men in Black, him in the Tommy Lee Jones kind of role and yeah. Ryan Reynolds in the Will Smith role. Yeah, yeah it was not a good movie, but uh, there were some good performances in it. But he always, he's, he's always, the, the hardest he tends to get is kind of the, the, the grizzled, jaded veteran. Kind of like Tommy uh, Tommy Lee Jones's Agent K in the the Men in Black series, right? And he even so did to see that him same take kind on this thing, really intense villain role. Yeah, he even did the same kind of gritty thing with True Grit when they remade True Grit. Um, yeah, which of course was uh, notoriously John Wayne's role be- in beforehand. But uh, yeah, to see him take on this Obadiah Stane role, this fatherly mentor who's scheming behind the scenes, and and I'm sorry, by the way, spoiler alert or not, these movies are however the hell old they are. You've had more than enough time. They're MCU movies. You've seen them, or you're not gonna. So, facts. Nobody jump down my fucking throat about spoilers, guys. Come on. But Obadiah Stane, the friendly, happy-go-lucky, paternal figure in Tony Stark's life after his father died. Turning out to be a manipulative sleazebag behind the scenes who's trying to get Tony whacked so he could take the company. That's pretty intense. And, and he handled yeah, it well. engineer's downfall. Yeah. He did. The only criticism that I, I kind of <clears throat> had seen levied against that character was one that did crop up a couple more times. And as you said earlier, you know, the MCU is, uh, they've got a great track record. They're not infallible. Right. But if there's any legitimate criticism that I have seen kind of levied at them in terms of their villains, uh, it, it kind of started with this archetype of Obadiah Stane slash Ironmonger in the first Iron Man film, where we kind of have a couple of movies. This will crop up again a couple of times later as we kind of go down the list of the villain winds up just being kind of a mirror universe version of the hero, um, where they, they kind of have a similar set of abilities or a similar set of enhancements. Um, Obadiah was kind of... Well, he, he was another higher up in the Stark Corporation. He wore a suit that had similar capabilities to Tony's, but because there's the very telling scene where he's yelling at the scientist standing outside the arc reactor, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps! When, when he talks about miniaturizing the arc reactor that powered the suit, um, it, it was a little bit of foreshadowing uh, on his part that, you know, we might have this huge corporation with all these innovative products, but really the driving force behind it is the brilliant mind of Tony Stark who can think of everything. And, of course, the end of the film is, you know, well, how'd you solve your icing issue when they go flying into outer space? And uh, Tony has, has experimented with his suit and solved the icing issue, but Obadiah, because he's newer with the suit and not as smart, did not think to solve that issue, and it became kind of the Achilles heel of his version of the suit. But the undercurrent of that character being, well, he's kind of a different version of the protagonist with similar abilities or similar accoutrements, 
uh, but he just lacks the moral authority or the the mental capability to handle the responsibility of whatever that is, and so therefore uh, he loses. That is a thing that kind of crops up once yeah. or twice more as we run down the list, Absolutely. but that was the first iteration of it. But um, overall, you're right. I think uh, seeing a, a character actor like Jeff Bridges cast in this role of this sort of subversive, behind-the-scenes, Machiavellian, engineering, downfall-of-the-hero kind of guy who comes pretty close to winning but loses in the end, we do see it pop up a couple more times, but it, it really was pretty effective in that context. Absolutely. And, and speaking of uh, that, that exact same trope you're talking about, a lot of that happened in the early MCU. Uh, and as, as they were trying yes. to get their feet under him, and, and they had to go with a classic villain archetype, I think. And, and a lot of it comes from the comic books, too, because the classic takes on these characters, their nemeses, as it will, uh, are characters of similar uh, depth and, and power and, and scale. Uh, because in the next movie, we have The Incredible Hulk, uh, played by Ed Norton. Uh, I enjoyed Ed Norton in the role. This is, of course, before Mark Ruffalo took the role and made it his own, which good for Mark Ruffalo. He's also fantastic and a wonderful human being. Um, Agreed. But in The Incredible Hulk, we had two quasi-villains. We had the Abomination, uh, played by Tim Roth, uh, and we had uh, Thunderbolt Ross, uh, Army General Thunderbolt Ross, played by William Hurt who just recently passed away, which was sad. Uh, he's a fantastic mm-hmm. actor. But uh, Thunderbolt Ross was just kind of the, the nagging thorn in uh, Hulk's side, Bruce Banner's side. But Tim Roth taking on that abomination role, again, like you said, kind of matching uh, the power scale with the Hulk because you're not going to throw someone weaker against the Hulk. What the hell would that do? Right. Uh, so you got a big, strong, quasi-indestructible muscle tank. Right, and where one has brains, the other has the devious tactical mind. And, and so that's kind of where they uh, took a turn, but they deviated from it. So uh, Tim Roth, mm-hmm. as as an actor, he's a superb actor. Um, I followed him in a lot of stuff, but one of my absolute all-time favorites is still going to go back to uh, Reservoir Dogs, uh, one of Quentin Tarantino's yes. first movies, where he played the... Uh, the ill-fated Mr. Orange. So, uh, And William Hurt is, uh, as you said, a fantastic actor. And actually, I met William Hurt very briefly once when I was at a restaurant in Malibu some years ago, about ten years ago now. And uh, I was waiting in line behind him for a soda refill as he was waiting for his fish tacos at a restaurant called The Real Inn in Malibu. And uh, we had a brief exchange. He was very cordial to me, incredibly nice guy. Uh, some shit did come out that he might have had some early abusive relationships in the first part of his career after he passed away, but... You know, nobody's perfect, and I, I'm not defending any abuse or any misogyny he may have engaged in in the earlier part of his life or his career. Right. And I understand that my personal experience with any given person doesn't negate that they might have been a, a pure shit monster to somebody else. <laughs> but overall, I mean, I think he did a great job in this movie. He's a good actor, and he was a nice guy to me. And if he wasn't a nice guy to somebody else, that's terrible, and I feel terrible for them. But, um, you know, this, this was a very effective film with some pretty effective villains who matched... The, uh, the, the the protagonist uh, kind of moment for moment. Uh, but whereas Bruce Banner had a brilliant mind and a bulky body that could throw tanks and crush buildings, they kind of had to split those two personality traits across two different characters in order to be able to, uh, to kind of go up against him. And um, it wound up uh, that kind of fragmenting those personality traits meant that Ed Norton's version of the Hulk could pick them apart and defeat them, if not easily at least, 
uh, to the satisfaction of the, the, the story narrative. What's really cool about Tim Roth's Abomination, we got a little sneak peek of him again in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is really kind of cool. Nothing yes. more than a glorified cameo. Uh, but we see him working with Wong on learning how to fight and control his anger, and, and which was neat. And then the the not the rumor mill; it's absolutely been confirmed that he will be back uh, for the She-Hulk series coming to Disney Plus. So I'm very much that really is the magic of the MCU. They, any any yeah. character they've established can come back at any time, and and the fans can go oh and point at the screen and have that moment of recognition where they see somebody they've seen before and perhaps had fond memories of right. in an earlier iteration of the uh, the franchises. So that was a pretty cool moment to see in the theater. Absolutely, and it was a neat way to. Uh, to kind of dovetail with other MCU films where we see kind of, especially in No Way Home, where we see Wong popping in and out, and obviously Wong plays a much more pivotal role in the aforementioned and upcoming uh, Multiverse of Madness, so uh, Benedict Wong is a fantastic actor, and his character is fantastic, and I look forward to seeing more of him, and maybe filling in some of those those gaps of, of where he's been popping in and out of the portals across the, uh, the multiverse, the dimensions, uh, as we piece together the rest of the story. So, okay, and then that moves us into the next movie, which is Iron Man 2. And again, we're splitting the, the villain role down the middle again. Iron Man 2, Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell, meant to be a poor man's version of Tony Stark, and Whiplash, played by Mickey Rourke. I love Mickey Rourke. When that Me too. when that dude commits to a role, Jesus, whole hog. Anyone who's seen The Wrestler can attest to that, or anyone who's seen yeah. uh, Sin City, where he played Marv in Sin City, For sure. is great. I love hitmen. No matter what you do to them, you don't feel bad. But that movie, uh, Justin Hammer is kind of the quote unquote brains behind this whole operation. And, uh, yeah, like I said, he plays kind of a poor man's Tony Stark. And Elon Musk, if you will. Bazinga! Um, I will. <laughs> who tries to dovetail on Tony Stark's success at Stark Company and tries to build his own uh, robot army because, obviously, Tony's not going to give his secrets to the government, whereas Justin Hammer is more than happy to sell out for a price. Um, and uh, he... Played by Sam Rockwell, which, Jesus Christ, I love Sam Rockwell in pretty much everything he you does. You and me both, dude. Again, I... I he's, he's usually the best thing about anything he's in. And this is going to keep coming back to this point, but they cast wonderfully in these movies. They really do. And uh, yeah, Sam Rockwell, if you haven't seen Moon, uh, highly recommend uh, seeing that one. It's, it's just a fantastic movie. Sam Rockwell plays the only inhabitant uh, of a an outer space base on the moon. Um, it, it's basically just an outpost, and he's the only uh, person who really runs it. Um, and that, that's all I'll say about it. The less I say about it, the better, because it is one of those kind of layered films that reveals itself in, in, uh, in, in parfait-like strata. Cake! Everybody loves cakes. Cakes have layers. I don't care! So you definitely want to check that out, um, if you haven't seen it already. But he's, he's fantastic. He was also great in... Um, uh, what was the movie where he played Chuck Barris? Uh, uh, oh, the Gong Show, show movie. Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous right. Mind? He was great in that. Galaxy he's, he's just a great actor. Oh, fucking fantastic. As yeah, Guy And, and uh, Mickey Rourke, also fantastic. Yeah, now, now uh, Iron Man 2 kind of gets dinged as being the quote-unquote weakest of the... Iron Man series, but uh, I mean, even a weak Iron Man movie is is better than most other movies <laughs> at full strength. So you can't take anything away from that one. Those two guys are great in that, 
And um, even if you do kind of have sort of the archetypal Marvel villain of, oh, he's kind of like the hero, but different, um, at least in terms of, uh, like the same thing they did with Hulk, where Justin Hammer is kind of the brilliant industrialist, and, you know, uh, Whiplash is the, the guy in the arc reactor-powered suit, uh, kind of like they did with Thunderbolt Ross and Abomination. Um, you still, it's it's it works. It works. They kind of fall back on certain tropes. They kind of go back to the well because these things work. And uh, having Tony Stark slash Iron Man be able to pick these two guys apart and defeat them each on their own footing because he is both of them put together. He's smart, he's strong, he's got the suit, he knows what he's doing, and he's got morality on his side, at least in terms of how they kind of context these things in the movies. Um, I think the whole thing worked, and it's, it's uh, to me, a great movie that really works quite well. I agree. And then, following that, we have our first foray with the Asgardian Avenger in Thor, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Uh, where our villain is our first glimpse at Loki, played wonderfully by Tom Hiddleston. Again, yes. an actor I can't find a bad thing about. He's charming. He's suave. He's incredibly good looking. And he's just, he plays this, pardon me for saying this, he plays this smarmy cunt to a T. I am Loki of Asgard. And I am burdened with glorious purpose. He's just oily as hell. Oh. He pulls it off to the, a, a wonder. Every time he turns around, there's another facet to this character that could have been very one note and mustache twirling. But right. Tom Hiddleston, you're right, as an actor, he just infuses it with so much personality that that he kind of took off and became kind of an antihero in his own right across the MCU, and rightly so. Right, absolutely. And so, uh, of course, now that brings in a different kind of dynamic because we're left with the dynamic of. The uh, uh, quibbling brothers, the 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 our adopted brother, but still they grew up as brothers between him and Thor, uh, and this sibling rivalry turned uh, power grab turned. I'll show you, no, I'll show you, and and just it's it, it's wonderful because I I get the sense that even through all of the anguish and torment and horrible shit that Loki does, and we're not done talking about Loki by any stretch. Uh, Hell no. I think you can still kind of see that veneer of of love for the other. You know, even if it's, yeah. uh, he picked on me mercilessly as a kid, he bullied the shit out of me, but if anyone tried to hurt me, he'd jump into my defense, you know, kind of thing. There, There is that kind of like undercurrent of like the, uh, the, the sort of Darth Vader, I see good in you without the ham-fisted George Lucas dialogue, <laughs> where in a, in he, he might be the god of mischief, his whole raison d'etre might be just to stir up shit and make things difficult for the heroes, he's impish, but in the clutch, he still does come through and he does demonstrate humanity, even if he's Asgardian, and uh, you, you can't hate the guy, no matter how many times he... You know, plays a shell game with the heroes, and and he's he, he is the god of mischief. You you can't trust the guy, and you know you can't trust the guy. So if his baseline is I'm gonna fuck with you, but then once in a while he turns around and does the right thing, just because underneath that oily sheen of of uh, of mischievous impishness, he still has he wants to do the right thing. Some of the time. But the thing you got to remember about Loki is he's not necessarily a villain. And this is he, he's one of the best villains in the MCU, and, th- and there are quite a few good ones, because he really does feel like he's the hero of his own story. Loki, he sometimes does things that help the heroes, the, the classic, you know, white hat heroes, just because 
he's on his own team. He has his own agenda. Sometimes his goals align with theirs, and in that case, he becomes an asset to them. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, he's got his own thing going on, and he has to kind of run off his own direction. So the unpredictability of that character is, I think, where his charm lies. Sometimes, like in the first Avengers movie on the Helicarrier, he is... As, as full of malice as you can possibly muster. But Odious. then you watch his Disney Plus series, or you watch him in uh, Thor 2, and he's just, you know, he has his moments of, of, of just pure glib joy. And so watching that character and seeing what he does and where his motives come from and the unpredictability of him and the fact that you can always count on him to look out for number one, but sometimes his interests align with the heroes and, and everything moves a lot more smoothly than you might expect. He's just... He's not a one-note character at all, even though he could have been. And he's just... Every time he shows up on screen, he's a delight to watch from stem to stern. Absolutely. Jim, you want to take the next one? Captain America, the first Avenger. Red Skull, Hugo Weaving. Oh. Now, Hugo Weaving is another absolutely fucking undeniably fantastic character actor. Uh, Elrond in the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, you know... Decides to, to to do drag and Priscilla Queen of the Desert. I mean, this guy has been all over Agent the map character wise. He's Matrix, one of the most, yeah. God, yes, one of the most versatile character actors we have, and uh, he just absolutely chewed scenery with the best of him in this movie, which is kind of a bummer because after it was over with, he kind of really didn't want to do it anymore, and uh, so we didn't really get much more of that character. And when we did, it was uh, a CGI. Voiced by the admittedly fantastic impressionist uh, Ross Marquand. But in the initial offing of the Red Skull, uh, we have Hugo Weaving, who, again, just fantastic. Um, As uh, Hugo Weaving and, uh, uh, what was his, uh, Johann Schmidt. Johann Schmidt. uh, The head of Hydra. Yeah, the head of Hydra in the the sort of uh, alternative MCU history of World War II. Positioned as being, if possible, more evil than Hitler. Because Hitler also exists in the MCU. Um... But it's he's contrasted in the film with Hitler, um, you know. And he positions himself as uh, well. The Führer runs around the desert chasing for trinkets, and meanwhile, the real power is right here. So he positions himself as being more ruthless, more risk taking, more ready to go to extremes Focused than even driven. Adolf Hitler yeah. is. And and just yeah, maniacal and and megalomaniacal and all the great things that any great villain would be, and of course the makeup job, whether it was CGI or uh, latex, with a combination of both, they did on Hugo Weaving in this film was fucking fantastic. He looked amazing. If you know anything about the Red Skull in the comics, and uh, he just was the perfect foil to the big star-spangled Boy Scout of Chris <laughs> Evans's Captain America. Then we have this absolutely outwardly and inwardly just evil to the core red skull um evil even by nazi standards uh within hydra kind of leading up the the charge to make those those mystical weapons out of the the tesseract uh infinity stone powered weapons in in the world war ii setting Uh, just an amazing villain and i really even though ross did a great job you know portraying that character in later iterations of it um we just one of the great mcu villains i'd say top three uh i don't know who the other two are going to be but he's definitely up there with uh yeah with one of the best villains that marvel's ever put on screen. he's great and, and i think the fact that it, it's he he was so menacing and he's able to portray this yes this cold this calculating that even a nazi would take a step back and go hey vote dude you need to take a chill pill <laughs> You're a little ambitious. Perhaps you might want to take a step back there, would you? You're a little ambitious. Um, and let's let's not forget that we had a take on the Red Skull previously. If we can't ignore the previous Marvel movies, we've got things like oh, what do we got? Like the old, like, I want to say it was 
early 80s take on Captain America with uh, yeah. J.D. Salinger's kid. Do you remember that one? I do, yeah. It was a Matt Salinger, I think. And uh, we had a Red Skull in that movie, and he was okay. And that version of Captain America was okay. A lot of the early Marvel movies suffered from just being okay. Uh, Blade, yeah. Blade was pretty good back in the day. We had, you know, our good villain in Deacon Frost and uh, and 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 such. But uh, really, the only villain of note that really holds up is from Howard the Duck. And I say that in a real-world context because Jeffrey Jones is a pedophile and he's in jail. So, uh, fuck yep, that guy right where, he belongs. right where he belongs. But anyways. And before we move on from Captain America, we also have to make at least a passing mention of uh, Toby Jones, uh, Arnim Zola, <laughs> who uh, is, is kind of the right-hand man of, of Johann Schmidt's Red Skull. Old TV and face. And he does pop up in, in, in later... Oh yeah, old TV face. Old... old uh, computer screen himself uh, he does pop up later and we'll talk about that as well but um he also uh, was pretty villainous in that film kind of a second fiddle but you, you can't discount his contributions to the narrative i thought he was fantastic in that that's a fair point and uh toby jones is a great actor and uh and the character of zola was uh was was pretty menacing so much so that they did bring him back and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute fair enough which brings us to again the avengers with uh loki tom hiddleston now we, we're not going to tread any new ground talking about Loki. He gets to flex his, his muscle here. I mean, this is the movie where we get the first just a little... A sniffling of, of Thanos. A sniffling of something beyond our earthly borders and Asgard's borders. And uh, with the Chitauri invasion of New York in the end of the movie. Led by Loki, but he's given that power by Thanos, which we've discovered. Um, again, Tom Hiddleston just... Owning it. And and my absolute favorite scene of him is when him and, and uh, uh, Tony Stark are going back and forth against each other up in Tony's penthouse. And then uh, Hulk jumps in and he tries to outwit the Hulk. Which is really shows how short-sighted he is because the Hulk was a rage monster at that point. He wasn't mm-hmm. Bruce Banner Hulk. Yeah. He wasn't Professor Hulk. He was... I'm going to grab this puny god by the legs, smash him back and forth, and beat him like a cartoon drum. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied by... Puny god. Uh, that was yeah. That was absolutely See, my favorite, my favorite Loki scenes. moment. Oh yeah, mine too. But my favorite Loki moment in that film was uh, the moment he had where he uh, got outsmarted. He tipped his hand a little bit, and um, you know, said that his plan was to get Hulk released on the helicarrier, and uh, he was trying and failing to intimidate uh, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow, hmm. and uh, while he was in the glass bubble, and he 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 was too proud of himself. The sin of pride allowed him to, uh, to to kind of monologue a little bit and give away a bit too much of his plan. And, of course, Scarlett Johansson very masterfully, as she did when she was tied up with a chair, positioned over the hole in the floor, pretending to be the uh, the shrinking, violet, gentle, little, uh, 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 delicate woman. And then she was manipulating the dude the entire time. And then, hold on one second. Okay, great. And she just, on a dime, Scarlett Johansson just completely shifted her entire persona from, I'm, you know, I'm just... Uh, a, 
just a woman, and then all of a sudden, oh, I was fucking with you the whole time. Thanks for the information. Uh, I'm going to go use that to uh, to beat your ass down. And that was another brilliant moment between the two of them. Um, it just really showed the strength of both of their characters, as well as how strong the writing and the stories are in these MCU films. Just a, a couple of brilliant, brilliant moments uh, from some brilliant character actors. Absolutely. This is my bargain, you mulin quim. All right, which brings us to Iron Man 3. We have our first attempt at what they call the Mandarin after he's hinted about in uh, uh, Iron Man 1. Uh, this this shadow organization, these quasi-ISIS terrorists. Uh, we have the uh, ever-wonderful Ben Kingsley stepping into the Mandarin. One of my absolute oh, favorite characters of all time, Ben Sir Kingsley. Ben God, he's Kingsley. fantastic. Let me give the respect on his Sir name. Sir Ben Kingsley. Yeah, for sure. Have to throw, Fucking fantastic throw that on there. One of my all-time favorites. He's great, and he absolutely as Trevor Slattery. Trevor Slattery, because as we learn, he is not the fucking Mandarin. He is an actor. No, he's not picked to portray the Mandarin by also not the Mandarin, Killian Aldrich, and uh, Killian Aldrich or excuse me, Aldrich Killian. I got that backwards. I keep doing that, but uh, and I call him false Mandarin. Uh, played wonderfully by Guy Pearce. Um, he was fantastic. He, he, ate, yeah, he, he absolutely chewed the scenery. We're absolutely kind of thrown for a loop when he's the Mandarin, which we all know he's not now. And it was just kind of a, a misdirect, a red herring. Uh, but he absolutely was just a man with a grudge. And sometimes yeah. that's all you need for a Tony villain. Stark fucked him over, and so he, yeah, he, he was uh, a guy that Tony Stark uh, didn't kind of gave the uh, the cold shoulder to, and he carried a grudge for years, and it was one of those things, again, because within the MCU, Tony Stark is a very, very important man, and uh, this guy felt slighted by him, and uh, for Tony Stark, it was a Tuesday. For this guy, it was a formative experience in his life that, that caused him to nurture a nugget of resentment that eventually blew up into... Uh, to him opposing Tony Stark Iron Man all throughout Iron Man 3 and, and giving him a real formidable run for his money, I'd say. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's where we were introduced to the extremist, uh, I don't want to say virus, it's a, it's a created entity, but uh, yeah, the extremist technology, I guess. Uh, we're gonna keep, mm-hmm. we're gonna start bouncing a bit quicker because we got this is the MCU. We got a whole hell of a lot more to talk <sighs> about, but we're gonna bounce bounce from uh, Aldrich Killian to uh, Thor: The Dark World with Malekith the Accursed, played by Christopher Eccleston. Now, now, yeah. The less said about Thor the Dark World, the better. A lot of people kind of consider it to be uh, one of the weakest entries in the MCU. I missed it. I'm kind of one of yeah. them. I don't think it was, again, I don't think it was a bad movie. I really just think it was, like, by Marvel standards, kind of not great. I think it's neck and neck, as much as I hate to say it, as ambitious and beautiful a film as it was with Eternals, for being kind of just the weakest Marvel outing. Um, but Christopher Eccleston uh, was... was uh, a fantastic, he, he's Doctor Who for fuck's sake I mean you can't take anything away from that guy as an actor and uh, he did the best of what he was given it's just that the Dark World was overall kind of a lackluster entry in the MCU right uh, I mean that's pretty much all that needs to be said about that I mean that's that's right on the head it, it, it's kind of a misstep one of the rare few that Marvel has made uh, again like you said not a bad movie even a bad Marvel movie is better than most you know tentpole blockbusters 
just kind of forgettable and unremarkable, right. you know. And you have to watch it because it's part of the overall story. But yeah, he just kind of it just kind of goes away after a while, and, you know. And not many ties to the actual MCU as a whole, as of yet. Now we've got the the new yeah. Thor: Love and Thunder coming out, uh, which of course uh, factors Jane Foster in quite heavily. So maybe some of the threads from that movie will come back. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, but okay, just kind of a, a, a blasé kind of version of an MCU movie. Bring it was there. bringing us to one of the best, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Uh, in this movie, yes. we have uh, two real villains to speak of: the outward villain and the inward villain, kind of like we discussed in the early MCU movies. We got our outward villain, the dragon, and the big bad in trope talk. Right, the the big bad uh, or the dragon, I guess. I don't know. Is uh, Winter Soldier, Sebastian Stan. Yes. Uh, Bucky Barnes, Cap's old sidekick who died in the first Avenger, supposedly. Who the hell is Bucky? Uh, brought back as the Winter Soldier, a KGB assassin uh, bent on wreaking havoc and, and wrecking shop at uh, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. at large. Uh, and of course, we don't find out until later, but his strings are being pulled by Hydra, uh, led admirably by... Uh, Alexander Pierce, played by Robert Redford. And when you get Robert Redford, you yes. always know you're going to get quality. That man exudes quality. I love Robert Redford. He really does. I love him. Uh, the act- But that was really the first hint that we had, that the, the tendrils of Hydra were not only still active, but really snaked deep into uh, into S.H.I.E.L.D. and into the, the, the UN and MCU's yeah. version of the American government. It was yeah. the first kind of idea that we had that, uh, that, that, that Hydra had, had just... Deep cover roots in these these institutions that were ostensibly that existed to fight evil that were still fostering it and fomenting uh, uh, terrorism from the inside and that 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 was a, a story thread that came to play in many many subsequent editions of this franchise. Right. And of course, we can to go back now into outer space for our next iteration, Guardians of the Galaxy, with our good friend Kree, Ronan the Accuser. Played by Lee Pace, yeah. and Lee Pace is known for playing these characters with a certain amount of gravitas. What are you doing? Dance off, bro. Me and you. Yeah, and he is the uh, behind Hugo Weaving, the second character to have played a high elf from the Lord of the Rings series, who uh, then comes back and takes off the blonde wig and puts on some full face makeup and menaces the heroes and Guardians of the Galaxy. But, uh, yeah, the Kree, uh, they factored a little more heavily into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in one of their, uh, the, the season where they went to outer space. Right. But uh, the Kree, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're aware of the MCU uh, at all, or actually even just the Marvel Universe, just the page, the print version of the Marvel Universe, the Kree and the Skrulls, which, again, is something we'll get into later, uh, are, are two warring alien races that all too often kind of choose Earth as their battlefield and, and have this uh, millennia-old war that they've been waging, and and um, neither one fully evil nor fully good, but uh, kind of just serving their own agenda a lot of the time, and we get sort of caught up in the crossfire as, as humans on Earth. Indeed. Um, but, uh, yeah, an interesting layered character that... Uh, that I, I found to be really fun to watch and uh, a, a wonderful foil for the Guardians of the Galaxy. And you kind of had to, at that point, have a really good character actor in that role to oppose these guys because, as has been discussed quite a bit since that movie came out, the Guardians were sort of like, you know, benchwarmers. They were sort of C-string <laughs> heroes within the uh, the print version of the Marvel Universe, but they became marquee heroes with the release of this film uh, because... 
back in the day, which was a Tuesday, uh, before Disney bought both Marvel and Fox and kind of brought all the entire MCU under one umbrella. So we're going to be getting things like Fantastic Four, and we're, we're sharing Spider-Man with Sony now, and this whole massive, tangled, Gordian knot of film rights and all that. Um, Marvel kind of had to, uh, to delve into their back pages a little bit to find some heroes that they still have the rights to to make movies about that they could bring in, and the Guardians were perfect for that because Thanos was going to be coming along, and... Uh, Obviously, um, you know, some of Thanos' family members figured very heavily, and uh, uh, Gamora and Nebula being his adopted daughters. Um, they had to bring in the sort of outer space, the sort of cosmic arm of the MCU, and the Guardians proved to be a really handy on-ramp for that. And, uh, you know, uh, Ronan the Accuser um, was, was, uh, was a good foil for, for, for those characters, and I think uh, the movie worked better for that as a result. I agree, and, and, and again... Uh, they have a real uh, habit of taking these second-string characters. Like you said, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy were were nowhere near the top of the Marvel bestseller list at that point. But if you look back, neither was Iron Man, really. Neither was the Avengers. Right. Back when these titles, uh, when the MCU movies started coming out, the biggest thing to come out of Marvel were the X-Men titles, the mutant titles. Yeah. And the Avengers titles always notoriously undersold uh, to the mutants. And... Uh, it kind of has turned around right now, and, and the Avengers and Iron Man and all these characters have become such uh, chart-topping heroes because of the MCU, uh, and, and they just have a habit of bringing these second stringers up from the rear and, and just kind of uh, introducing them to a wider audience and bringing them to more people, uh, which, again, like you said, they did that with uh, the Avengers, with Iron Man, with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and, and I mean and, and so on, we got more down the line that'll be second stringers. I mean, Doctor Strange is never a second stringer by any ma- stretch of the imagination. He's been around the Marvel Universe for decades since the Silver Age, right. for, at least. Right, but he wasn't a big seller. I wouldn't say his book was one of the top sellers. And now look at him, poised to have. But because one of the Marvel in order to stay afloat. Yeah. To stay afloat years ago, Marvel had to sell off big chunks of their film rights. They sold off Spider-Man to Sony. They sold off uh, the, the entire mutant wing of their empire. And, and so, for a long time, before we actually had the MCU as we know it, like you said, the X-Men were kind of the biggest draw on the screen for the Marvel Universe, but then all of a sudden they weren't part of the larger Marvel Universe, and they had to find ways to tell these classic ripped-from-the-page stories without involving characters like... Uh, the Fantastic Four, or the Mutants, or Spider-Man, and we're just now, with the integration of all of these, you know, the the corporate machinations behind the scenes, bringing all of the film rights back under the same umbrella, we're just now starting to see it, and and that's why this whole multiverse thing, which is, whether it was planned, or whether it was just a light bulb moment on the part of Kevin Feige and whoever is pulling the strings of the Marvel Universe (laughs) right now, to say that, hey, you know, sure, we've had these disparate threads of storytelling because we've had these different studios in charge of different... Uh, rosters of characters, but now we can just say it's the multiverse, and we can just kind of, you know, bring things in and out. We can have Evan Peters sort of return as Quicksilver. We can open up portals and have Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield's Spider-Men come in and help out Tom Holland. And it's just a fucking masterstroke, because it creates this anticipation of these movies, and like you said, the, the advanced ticket sales for Multiverse of Madness are crazy just because of the rumor mill. Anybody who's ever even been been whispered about showing up in the MCU or that has appeared on screen... Uh, could possibly show up. And, of course, they just recently recut 
the trailer for Multiverse of Madness, and there's like a second and a half long shot of what's very clearly um, Professor Xavier's wheelchair, mm-hmm. and so just the the rumor mill is going into overdrive, and they're so smart about it because. Everybody's going to see that movie opening weekend, and whether or not it's a calculated move on their part, or whether it dovetails with storytelling, or maybe six of one and half a dozen of the other, we've got people that, that, that are going to see these movies the first weekend they open, which as we all know in the current box office environment is crucial for their overall take, um, because you have to, otherwise something could get spoiled for you. And they're just dripping and drabbing out enough information to keep the, the hype high and the rumor mill going so that everybody and their mother, who who's even seen an MCU film in the last 10 or 12 years, is going to be there on, on opening day to check it out to make sure that they A, don't miss anything, and B, don't get erect for them by some asshole whispering in, uh, outside of a bar or on the internet or what have you. So they're, they're just genius with that. And uh, I commend them for it. However, whether it's driven by narrative or money or both, I don't give a shit. shit. It works. (laughs) Exactly. They've earned enough career goodwill with me that they can get away with pretty much fucking anything by now. I'll be there opening weekend. I'll be out of town on vacation, and I'm still going to find a movie theater to get to to see this movie. That's how much I want to check it out. Absolutely. Next up, Avengers Age of Ultron. We have the titular character Ultron played by James Spader, which is fantastic. Another fantastic, fantastic character actor. And, and, and yeah. I think they did a really smart thing here by not physically casting. Because James Spader's getting up there. So 62 years old now. Uh, he would have been, what, like five or six years younger when they filmed this? Maybe seven? So let's say mid-50s at that point. Not the right physical specimen for playing an aggressive, menacing robot, even in mocap. Uh, I don't know how much they mo-capped uh, Spader for this. I'm pretty sure they just used a double and used his voice. Um, but regardless, regardless, I mean, he's got that 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 gravitas and that uh, that sort of droll world weary delivery that is just crucial to that character. Because I mean, even if uh, Ultron is is chronologically an infant, um, he is is canonically he absorbs the entire. Uh, knowledge of, of humankind by, by connecting himself to the internet and then learning everything there is to know about the world and making his decisions about what that means for the human race within the first 30 seconds of being quote-unquote alive. And uh, from there, I, I keep seeing this meme on Facebook where it kind of dovetails into that villain has a point meme where they say, yeah, who can blame Ultron? He, he <laughs> learned the entire internet in the first 30 seconds of his life and decided based on that that humankind was simply too sick to survive. What the fuck, bro? I agree. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, he's kind of right. So, uh, he saw it yeah, and it's because of that. It's Yeah, that, that gray morality, that sort of like, eh, we can sort of sympathize with the villain a little bit, uh, like comes up in a lot of other contexts in the MCU and in, in, in a lot more modern movies, where, hey, you know, the villain kind of has a point. Right. Um, so it, it, it becomes a, a very sort of sympathetic portrayal, um, and James Spader was absolutely the right choice to bring that uh, to the screen and to bring it to life. He's fantastic. I agree, and uh, I, I I didn't even mind his take on uh, The Office. I don't know if you watched The Office. Uh, oh, yeah. He played a kind of a, a strange uh, character named Robert California. Do I look like someone who would waste my own time? Uh, yeah. It was, it was just really weird. 
kind of re- replaced uh, in, in one of the final seasons when Steve Carell had dipped out of the series and they were kind of coasting on fumes a little bit. He came in to, uh, to goose the, uh, the cast a little and kind of shake things up. And whether or not it worked, it still was uh, an interesting direction to take things in. But, <laughs> it uh, sure was a thing. You know, I've, I've loved Spader since the... I, I, Spader's been great since the Rat Pack days, so good for him for being able to breathe life into the, what could have been just an empty tin shell of a character. Speaking of empty tin shells of characters, Darren Cross... Yellow Jacket in Ant-Man. Now, I'm going to be a little bit controversial Played here. I'm going to say that Ant-Man... Yeah. Ant-Man, I think, as a film, suggested... Uh, I'm going to suggest that that, that 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 film worked despite rather than because of the villain. Because okay. this kind of is one of those other movies that, that falls into the same criticism of Obadiah Stane as Ironmonger. Okay, it worked once, but you guys are going back to the well. We have just... Another version of Scott Lang slash you know Hank Pym. He's he's a, a brilliant industrialist that works in this area of technology, and he's wears a suit that gives him kind of the same powers as the hero. And they fight it out on a level because they both have sort of comparable abilities. And that's a valid criticism. I think Ant Man works because Paul Rudd is one of the best character actors we have, and the strength of the supporting cast. Uh, was fantastic in that movie, and the story was great, and Michael Keaton was great, and and you know. The, the Marvel films kind of tend to fall into not one of two categories, but one of two broader buckets. Okay. Um, there's the the more serious ones, your Avengers ones, where the stakes are kind of high and the Chitauri are attacking and the world's fate hangs in the balance. Then you kind of have the uh, the funnier ones, like your Thor movies and, and Ant Man, where you've got um, not well, not all the Thor movies. The first two Thor movies are pretty serious, even though Thor is kind of a goofy character in the first one, throwing down goblets. Another one. Uh, the, the the last two Thor movies, the one that's coming out in, over the summer, and then. Thor 2 have been kind of more on the comedic side and Guardians of the Galaxy are funnier. Uh, so th- this is more of a comedic take on the character uh, because Ant-Man, even in the comics, was always kind of uh, kind of a prankster, kind of funny, always had that real tongue-in-cheek delivery to his lines. So they kind of had to cast a, a very funny actor to play him and and uh, I think they did a great job with Paul Rudd. But Ant-Man, is, as a movie, works because of how strong the narrative and, and the, the protagonist are. Because Yellow Jacket, I think, was just kind of a, a cellar dweller in terms of being interesting. Uh, as, kind of as, a, as far as uh, kind of a, uh, What's his name? Hammer. Justin Hammer. Yeah. Just kind of... Yeah, a, just, a, just not real compelling. Just a, not, not so much supervillain, just kind of evil businessman. Just sort of there, yeah. yeah. Just kind of like a... Uh, uh, you know, sort of an Elon Musk, I guess. And, and we'll a, get back to the evil businessman trope. Trust me. More dollars than cents. <laughs> <laughs> a, a movie that works because of the, the strength of the protagonist. Ant-Man was great, continues to be great. Scott Lang, Paul Rudd, fantastic. Now, we come to a controversial take. Hot take, not really, because it's been yeah. a few years. Captain America Civil War. The villain? Their own fucking hubris. Amen. They built themselves up into these world guardians, and it was an unsustainable method of, of doing business. Uh, the villains in this movie depend upon which side of the coin you flip. It's either Iron Man and his team, or Captain America and his team. Whether you support these mm-hmm. Sokovian Accords and the government, or whether you support uh, the freedom to choose... Which is a very... Uh, the Civil War that we got in the comics was much more nuanced, obviously. Um, yes. and But brought along by very same uh, similar methodology was uh, the death, uh, accidental death of uh, innocent civilians. In this particular case, uh, it's like a school bus and a half full of kids and teachers. Yes. Blown up by the villain Nitro on live TV 
because mm-hmm. the new warriors were filming a reality show about how to be a superhero. And so Nitro, very strange power, he gets to blow up and not blow up at the same time. Weird. Uh blew up a school bus full of kids and teachers and just I want to say something like 60 something yeah. people died in that and that's what caused uh, the, the Accords the Superhuman Registration Act is what they called it in the comics it wasn't a Sokovian Accords because it it happened to be Sokovia in uh, after the Sokovian incident in Age of Ultron at the end of Age of Ultron right. yeah so I mean obviously they're they're similar but different but uh their own hubris, their own taking yeah. of the world's problems and making it their responsibility is what caused this. So there's really no villain in this movie except for a point of view. And that's what makes, yeah, I think that's what singularly makes absolutism. this different. Yeah, we've, we've got on one hand the Tony team, um, you know, because Tony obviously has some massive contracts with the government. He is still ostensibly an arms dealer, so he's kind of got to play ball a little bit. And then on the other side of it, we have uh, Steve Rogers and the Captain America crew. Uh, and, of course, he came up fighting Nazis. And he, you know, was a hero during World War II. And his whole thing is like, well, no, government control is fascism. And so anything that, that restricts the freedom of people, I mean, obviously within reason, uh, is, is going to be something that I'm going to be ideologically opposed to. So it wound up, the, the, in the marketing for that film, it was just, well, you are you on Team Iron Man or are you on Team Cap? You know, are you for uh, sort of like logical restrictions on power or are you for people governing themselves through altruism? And it, it just became a really interesting philosophical discussion, as it was in the comics. Uh, and it was kind of reduced a little bit on the screen because, you, you, you know, you obviously have to streamline the narrative a little bit and you don't necessarily have the luxury of spreading a 76 issue story over 12 different titles of comics but uh, you still had most to all of the the, uh, the the series regulars to that point kind of piling together it wound up being kind of an Avengers 2.5 right um, before the the next Avengers movie came out because it really did involve the the, the massive casts of, of all of the uh, the films kind of up to that point. And that was, of course, our first backdoor introduction to uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man before he got his own films. Uh, they kind of, at the last minute, at the eleventh hour, that in production of that film, they kind of hammered out a sharing deal Marvel did with Sony to bring Spider-Man into the MCU, and um, he was on Team Cap, and it was just an interesting way to kind of bring things together. But it, it really was kind of fan service in a way because you had all these heroes. Oh, who would win in a fight between Iron Man and Captain America? Who would win in a fight between Falcon and Spider Man? And so you kind of had all these speculative mashups uh, kind of coming to life on the screen. And, and it was uh, a dynamic film and and considered to be one of the better ones, and for good reason. Absolutely. We're going to do one more here because, like I said, this is a big catalog. We keep trying to go through all this, but yeah. Jim and I, we're wordy fellas, as you might not have noticed. I don't know. Maybe you have. We tend to, to wax philosophical uh, quite often, and so we kind of run long, and I don't want to run too long. So we're going to do one more, and then we'll bring the other half of the MCU to you on our next installment. So the last one we're going to talk about today is, aptly, Doctor Strange. We have a couple of different villainous characters, uh, but one main villain. Uh, the main villain is Cassilius, who's played by Mads Mikkelsen, mm-hmm. who has a real penchant for playing these 
menacing kind of, you know, just stare into your soul kind of villains. Um, he does. He, I mean, he's he's a great actor. He's, by all accounts, a nice guy, but he's really got that intensity. That sort of like made for film creepy Eastern European sort of villainous face going on. <laughs> and uh, whether or not he's been typecast as a bad guy, uh, he still just really digs into those roles and, and is, uh, is fantastic at them. And uh, the first Doctor Strange standalone film was no exception to Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Mads Mikkelsen, of course, has also played, I, I want to say he was Hannibal Lecter, wasn't he, in that uh, Hannibal TV show? Yeah, he was. And yeah. then uh, he played Jen Erso's father in Rogue One. Uh, not a villain, but not really a great guy either. But I mean, he he and I he's also, a fantastic actor. Yeah, he, he was also Le Chiffre in uh, the uh, the Casino Royale. Oh, um, Le Chiffre, James Bond film. That's right. Yes, I forgot. And about uh, that. just you know, f- absolutely fantastic. Uh, great actor. Um, tends to have a real, like you said, a real proclivity for playing these villainous characters, and he just does great at them, and this was this was no different. He's, he's very menacing in this film, and a fantastic foil for the Sorcerer Supreme. Absolutely. And then, of course, we also have uh, Baron Mordo, which you're going to have to pronounce this guy's name, because uh, Chiwetel? Chiwetel Ejiofor. Okay. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Fantastic, fantastic African actor. Um, he's great. British African I actor. love him. Uh, he's, he's he's typically also the best thing about anything he's in, and he's he, he figures very prominently in the uh, in in the trailer for Multiverse of Madness. He's returning as Baron Mordo. Yes. Um, but again, he's he's kind of one of those characters that, depending on the context, he's he's either uh, a hero, an anti-hero, or a villain. I mean, he kind of has his own agenda and serves his own ends, and whether or not that aligns with what the goals of the the heroes are, kind of depends on the narrative. So that's you know, as we kind of wrap this this first part of this episode up. I really find that that's that's a piece of praise that I kind of have to give to a lot of these villains is that uh, it could be very easy. And Hollywood in general has kind of, because they, they assume their audiences are stupid, they kind of <laughs> often descend into Tropish, these sort of black very, hat versus white hat and mustache yeah. twirling, evil for the sake of evil sort of um, uh, character. But I'm going to put a little button on this, this particular uh, episode by saying that uh, the the MCU and even sort of like threads of the MCU have often created really interesting villains by kind of taking this idea. Whereas a lot in in the hands of a more ham fisted and less skilled series of creators, and I'm not saying the MCU has, has completely fallen not fallen prey to this because in the first Spider Man movie we're not so different. You and I we're the same. That <laughs> that classic line of of where the the villain has the hero in a compromising position and says we're really the same. You and me. Um, the Join MCU me. has, in large part, shown and not told that. They haven't fallen into that sort of ham-fisted delivery of that line. No, we're the same. They actually have created these villains that genuinely believe, from their perspective, that they are the heroes of their own story. Right. Whether or not it's you know Baron Mordo, whether or not it's... And even though this is kind of, maybe again, a controversial take as far as whether or not this is part of the MCU, even though they brought Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin back as a villain in the Hawkeye series, which is MCU canon... And uh, we also have Matt Murdock in No Way Home. Um, I find that the uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's take on Kingpin is one of the more interesting MCU villains. And, you know, he's still on the list, but I, I do want to just kind of, you know, toss him out there as being somebody who's fascinating to me. Because he really does feel like, when he looks at Matt Murdock's uh, Daredevil, he really feels like he is the guy who is the hero, and Matt Murdock is the disruptor. Because even if he's 
tearing down buildings and trying to gentrify Hell's Kitchen. He's got the money to, to make a difference in people's lives. And and uh, the, the metaphor of uh, constantly seeing Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin in the Daredevil series on Netflix making himself omelets for breakfast... It was a little bit ham-fisted, but also really incredibly subtle at the same time, where you got to break some eggs to make some omelets. And I remember uh, <laughs> at the time I actually tweeted to the official Daredevil Twitter account, oh, seeing Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin constantly breaking eggs to make omelets is almost like the the, uh, the creators are trying to sell us on a subtle metaphor for how what he feels his motivations are. And uh, the, the official Disney Daredevil account was the only one who liked that tweet. So I think I might have been onto something with that. You don't say! Um, hey, I like a little yeah, ham with uh, the my omelets. The MCU in general. Hey, Badum Tish, for sure. But yeah, the MCU does have a pretty good track record, with with notable exceptions here and there, of creating these villains that actually have interesting motivations, that that see them not just being one-note, mustache-twirling, black hat-wearing, snidely whiplash clones, and I kind of love that. Absolutely. So, that is the first half of our take on the MCU's villainy. Uh, Let us know what you think. Who is your favorite villain in the MCU? Why? Who's your favorite actor in a villain role? Why? What brings you to these people? What draws you to these people? What makes maybe the villain sympathetic to you? I'd like to hear your take on that. Because as we move on, as we move closer to new uh, new MCU projects, hello Multiverse of Madness, hello Captain Marvel uh, 2, uh, the Marvels, uh, we got Secret Invasion coming up, we got She-Hulk coming up, we got so much on our plate that... Uh, yeah, we do. I want to know what you think. Who's your favorite? Why? Let us know. Hit us up on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Fear Your Fandom. But uh, we will be back next week for our second installment of this MCU villainy uh, kind of examination. Um, but we want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Fear Your Fandom podcast. And please do remember, everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. and I are not so different. I'm not like you. Well, do each his own.